Good morning. Good morning. Now that you've all sat back down, you um, all looked really, really comfortable there, ladies. <laughs> it was good to see. I had a little chuckle as I got up just to see the awkwardness on people's faces. But that was lovely. That was lovely. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Truly best to be a part of this church. So many godly women really are. So we are in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 to the end. If you, if you have that section open in front of you. I'm going to be moving through that. Again, it's a lot of text this morning, so I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to be moving through it, but I could really, really encourage you folks, be spending your own time as well um, in this, do it in groups, read it in groups, pray about it in groups, gather together, but make sure you work through this, this, this story together because it's absolutely phenomenal as a story and you'll get so much from it. Okay, so we're in the book of Exodus, as we just said, and we're coming to the end of our first kind of section as it were, as we head towards Easter. As God, through Moses, he's leading his people out of slavery, and God is making himself known. He's making himself known to Israel. He's making himself known to Egypt. He's making himself known to the world, and he's displaying that he is the only God in the description of these so-called Egyptian gods. He's displaying his power over creation and nature and all the powers and principalities. He's displaying his love and his care and his grace and his mercy towards his liberated people. And last week what we saw, we saw how we moved in judgment over humanity in the killing of all the firstborn, but is passing over those covered by the blood of the lamb. And as we pick up today's passage, Israel had been released from slavery. So God's people have been released from slavery and Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. So let me pray and then we'll jump, jump right in. Father, you are the God who makes yourself known. We thank you that, that that is an act of grace in and of itself, that we as human beings get to see you, get to know you, get to experience your goodness. And Father, we pray this morning that you would make yourself known in this place by your spirit. I pray that you would help us to see you, to know you, to see the beauty of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the wonder of the gospel and that you would cause our hearts to rejoice and fear not as we walk through this passage. Amen. Amen. So, one of the, the first questions you should be asking as you open up um, God's Word is, what has it shown us about God? In fact, if you ask no other question, you've got to ask one question, that should be the question you ask. What does this show us about God? Or even better question, God, what are you showing us here about yourself? And we're going to see that through this first section. So first of all, verse 17 through to 22, we'll make, through, we'll make our way through together. But in verse 17 to 18, we're going to see God's protection. So chapter 3, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people round by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. So God's people are heading for, for Canaan. And in this walk to freedom, into the promised land. And the quickest way, the most direct way, would be to go up and across the top, and it'd only take a few weeks. But, but for that to happen, God would have to lead them through the land of the Philistines. You see, the problem with that is as they would walk through that path, they would be faced with a lot of enemies and a lot of armies. See, at the time, the Egyptians, they had loads of military forts, and so loads of like warriors and armed warriors all along this route. And you've got the Philistines who would have rose up against them as well as they moved through the country. And then the Canaanites, as they got into the land of Canaan, would have engaged with them. And God knows or knew at this point that his people were not ready for that battle yet. 
They were in no state to fight that yet. Physically or spiritually, God needed to prepare them. And that sentence where it says they were equipped for battle actually means they were in, in formation. So they went out in formation, but they weren't ready for war. Engaging in this conflict would distress them too much and put pressure on them. And that battle would come, just not yet. And God knows what is best for his people. And so what he does purposefully and lovingly, he moves them into the wilderness on a journey that will take them 40 years instead of a few weeks. Then we get to verse 19, and we see God's faithfulness. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Slightly weird as a verse. A bit strange, isn't it, to mention bones at this point? What's going on? In fact, what they take up, if you're to know the situation, is actually an embalmed mummy. And it is Mother's Day, so it seems quite apt. See, this is a reminder, I think, here that God is faithful. He is the God of promise. See, what had happened, there is links that are being drawn out through this story. We're getting anchors in sections of the story before, which help us to look forward. What we're being reminded is Genesis, sorry, my microphone's come out there. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 to 26, the verse will be up on the screen. Joseph says this, just before the story of the Exodus. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph was trusting in the promises of God that had already been made to Abraham before him. And he is seeing something, Joseph, of this day to come, where God would liberate his people. Trust in that. And in faith, what he does, we read that in Hebrews, in faith, he gives direction for the future. Now, I think this would have been really comforting for the readers of Exodus, for God's people, because there's an element where it transcends, it's a lifting up of this moment. It's a showing that this is the one true God. He is the God who is good for his promises. He always has been, and he always will be. And then in verse 20 to 22, we get God's presence with his people through the wilderness. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God's presence is with his people. A little bit later in chapter 14, verse 19, it says that the angel of the Lord was in the cloud. The angel of God was in the cloud. In verse 24 of chapter 14, it says, the Lord is in the cloud and he looked down. Okay, so we're being told through this account that this is, a, this is God himself. This is a theophany, it's called. And that's the, the presence of God made manifest in a way that is seen and experienced by God's people in the Old Testament. It's like an outward display of, of God's inner glory. God is revealing himself, the God who makes himself known. And fire and cloud, these are, are themes that echo throughout the book of Exodus. If you think back to chapter 3 from a few weeks ago, God revealed himself in a burning bush, the fire and cloud. Now he's a pillar of fiery cloud, and God's presence will descend onto the mountain in fire and cloud, and we'll see it in the tabernacle with, with, with the cloud as well. We're seeing this as a theme, God is revealing himself, the God who makes himself known. 
And this passage here where we see God reveal himself in this pillar of, cl of cloudy fire or fiery cloud shows us the, the comfort of God's presence with his people. I've actually read this loads, and I think until this past couple of weeks, I think I've misunderstood what's going on here. I've always thought of this in the wrong way, because what I see when I read this is like a little small cartoon cloud, you know, like a, a kind of a, almost like an emoji size, or like a Moses' speech bubble that follows him round all around the desert. So one of the staff teams mentioned it's like an Olaf from Frozen, it's like the rain cloud that he has above his head. It seemed like that to me. That's a total misunderstanding. It's so much more, so much bigger. See, God's presence, this, this cloud in the day was a, was a comfort because it was a visible reminder in front of them, around them, that God was with them. But he was also protecting them in the day, practically from the heat of the sun in the desert. This cloud must have been huge, big enough to cover and protect millions of people. Big enough later on to be seen by the whole of the Egyptian army and to throw them into a panic. In the evening, it was seen as a, in the dark as a fire, providing light and providing warmth for God's people in the, the cold of the desert. God was leading his people in this fiery cloud. So, so when he moved, they moved. Read that through the story. When he stayed, they stayed. God didn't leave his people. He was with them for the 40 years in the wilderness. So what does this passage show us about God? Well, it shows us that he is a God who protects. He is a God who is faithful. And he is a God who is present with his people. That's what's being shown right at the start here. And then as the story unfolds, we see God tells his people to turn and camp. That's in chapter 14, verse 1 to 4. He says, camp between Migdol, which was an Egyptian fort, and the sea. And this must have been a really strange experience for, for God's people. Because they will have known as they come out that this is a very vulnerable position. The desert, an Egyptian fort, and a sea, they seem to be trapped. It's not something that you would pick as a strategic position. It seemed very much like they were trapped. <clears throat> but God doesn't work in our ways. God isn't limited in the way that we are. In his sight, in his planning, in his understanding, in his power. And what God then does, he tells them what's going to happen. He says to them, look, Pharaoh is going to come after you. And he won't stop. But I'm going to deal with him. I'm going to deal with Pharaoh once and for all. These Egyptians, they're going to see and they're going to know that I am the Lord. God is saying he will be glorified and he is preparing his people for what is about to happen before them. And then as the story unfolds further, we see that what God said was going to happen actually happens. Pharaoh in his pride and in his hardness of heart, along with his leaders and all the important people who would give him advice and counsel around him, changed their mindset of letting God's people go. And forgetting what God had done before them so clearly in those signs and wonders, those plagues, they instead want revenge. They actually want Israel back. They want to go after God's people and they want to take them to be slaves by force. This is horrific. This is a taking of a people. This is an evil plan. And Pharaoh, he is the, the most powerful ruler in the world. And Egypt are the most powerful nation in the world for a good reason. They had the best army. They were the best trained. They were the best resourced. They had the, the most advanced military technology of the day, the chariot. And so Pharaoh, we read, he chose all of his best troops, his most elite troops. Think, think SAS, SBS, the you know, Delta Force. Think all of those things. And then along with the rest of the army, he gathers them. And on horses, we read, they quickly catch up to Israel. And they overtake them by the sea. And we quickly see the power dynamic that's at play here. You can just imagine the, 
the, Isra- the, the Egyptians, as they, as they see the Israelites seeing them, cornered with nowhere to run, trapped, no weapons, they've got no chariots, they've got no horses, no army as such, no trained men as such. This is a hopeless situation. Pharaoh sees it, and he's confident along with his army. Israel sees it, and they have a wobble big time. And what happens then as we move through verse 10 to 12 is that Israel, they, they respond out of this fear. They're actually scared. You can, you can really sense that the biggest, most powerful army in the world has them cornered. And they forgetting what God said, forgetting what God said because he told them this would happen. They fear Pharaoh and the Egypt. And they respond in complaint. They actually turn on Moses, God's leader. And what God is doing here, he's, he's actually revealing to his people what it is that is in their hearts. They'd rather be in slavery to their fears, their desires. They'd rather be in slavery to the Egyptians, these cruel people, than to trust God. And so they rebel against God. They rebel against his way. And we get to verse 13. Look at it with me, please. And Moses, to the people, says to them, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's incredible, isn't it? What a verse. Fear not. I fear not. I'm told by experts in the Hebrew language is the strongest form of negation in the Hebrew language. This is actually a rebuke. What he's basically saying is you have no right to fear or to be afraid because you have no reason to fear. God told you this would happen. He's with us. Our warrior God is going to save us. Like he said, he will do it. Your all, folks, your all, stand firm and watch it. That's what he's saying. Stand firm and watch it. He is working your salvation. He is fighting for you. He is dealing with your enemies and therefore his enemies. And the temptation in these difficult circumstances, which is to to run away, to fix it in the wrong way, to blame, to cry wrongly. Into that, God says, stand firm. Stand your ground. I am your defender. You need only be silent. And God then speaks to Moses, verse 15 to 18, and he says, it's time for action. Face the sea. Turn face the sea. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so my people can go through on the dry land. Imagine that. Moses is being given the power by God to divide the sea. And he tells Moses, that the Egyptians, they're going to follow you. All of them, all of Pharaoh, all his army, all the chariots, all the horsemen, they're going to follow you. They will see me act. They will know that I am God. He is the God who is revealing himself. And I defend you and destroy them. And then we read this in verse 19. Read it with me, please. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. God is showing his protection for his people again. It's even in time. That's what we read here. 
And the pillar, it moves from being at the front leading God's people to being behind, to protecting God's people. God is protecting his people and he's showing them. He's protecting them from this huge army. And on one side where the Egyptians were, there was just darkness. The Egyptians are in the dark, but God's people on the other side, they are in the light, the light of God's presence, the guiding presence. They are a people of light. And then Moses stretches out his hand like God had said. And as the wind blows and picks up, we read the sea parts and the water is divided. Folks, this is no geographical phenomenon. This is not just wind pushing it back or a tidal change. Verse 22 makes it really clear. The water was in a wall on either side. Chapter 15 actually tells us the waters were in a heap. This is God's doing. God's people move through this large effectively supernatural corridor with water, walls of water either side which could have destroyed them. This is God's hand. Only God can do this. And what does Egypt do? Verse 23 to 25, they go in after them. They go in between these walls and God in the pillar, it's amazing verse, God in the pillar looks down upon the most powerful army on the earth. He looks down upon them. And he throws them into a panic and they seeing God are thrown into a panic. There's a, a great fear and desperation that hits this incredible army caused by the very presence of God, caused by his power on display. And the chariots, this most advanced technological system in the world for warfare is not working. The wheels start getting stuck. They realize they're in danger and the panic just starts to spread. And they're like, we need to flee. They recognize this is God's hand. This is a power bigger than us. He is fighting for these people. He's fighting for, for Israel. We need to run. We need to run for our lives. And faced with God and the reality of death, they panic. And the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand so the water comes back. Moses does. And the sea returns to its normal course. It's a double blow for Egypt, folks. Because as the morning appeared, it's the few little words that are mentioned there is when the Egyptian sun god Ra would be appearing. God is showing he is the one true God. He's showing his superiority. And the Egyptian army, its ruler that they thought was divine, the most powerful, elite, technologically advanced force in the world, everyone who followed Pharaoh into the sea was destroyed. It's clearly put, not one remained. And we close with verse 29 to 31. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Water for God's enemy became death and destruction, a place of fear and dread. But for God's people became the means of life. Life through water, life through death, a path to freedom, a path to the promised land. Just look at verse 31. Where did God's people end up? The safest place possible. Fearing God, not man. Believing in God and trusting in his appointed man, not his enemies. Trusting in his 
appointed means of salvation, trusting in his way, trusting in his purposes, trusting in his timing. What do we learn about God? God protects his people. God is present with his people. And in the power only God has, he fights for his people and he saves his people. So as we close, we've got three things that I want us to take away from this. First of all, circling back around again, what we see here is God's protection. And just two sides of God's protection that we are going to see. First of all, we see God's protection in how he leads us in his timing and in his way. See what happens, God, God often takes his people on a different path to what we would choose. Often what we find, folks, we have our minds set on certain things. And what God does, he puts us on a path which is often slower. He puts us on a path which is harder than we would put ourselves on, longer. But what we see here and we see in the context is that God's path is always better for God's people. Always. See, our hearts, folks, they are deceptively wicked. The Bible tells us that. And that means that we, we have wrong desires. We have wrong thoughts. That often we're not even aware of them. They can just be sitting there. And we just function in them without realizing. We, we live for the wrong things. Which are destructive on our lives. We love the wrong things. We have goals and motives and priorities. Which are destructive to us and the people around us. And we just function there without realizing. Sometimes when difficulty comes. We can be tempted to, to return to Egypt. What I mean by that is to go back to our old ways, to go back to our old habits, the ones that enslaved us. Because we find some weird sense of comfort and familiarity there, even though it destroys us. God loves us too much for that. God loves us too much for that. So God in his grace, what he does, he puts us on a different path. Often we resist it. But he does this, folks, to reveal what is in our hearts. He does it to root out and destroy the things that are destroying us within us. What happened with Egypt, Israel, sorry, they went from fearing Pharaoh in Egypt to fearing God. Folks, fearing God is the safest place. Fearing and trusting God is the healthiest place, regardless of the circumstances that we will find ourselves in. What God does through this account, and we see this as this whole story unfolds, he makes them stronger, more resilient. It is through these experiences that they understand God's character in different ways. They actually see God for who he is. He is still revealing himself. And walking through what God calls us to walk through, difficulty, suffering, hardship, though it often feels hard, is where true life is, is where growth is, is where blessing is. It reveals to us those, those areas of wrong thinking and desires and belief that we didn't know were there. I use this example all the time. I've robbed her off someone else named a guy called Paul Tripp. I use it about twice a year because it's so good. And what he does, he takes a water bottle, a water bottle like this, shakes it and water comes out. And he asks the question, why did water come out? And the obvious answer is, well, because you shook it. He's like, no, water came out because water was in the bottle. That's why water came out. It's what God does. He shakes things around us. He removes things. He reorders he reprioritizes for us and he shapes us. He reorientates our lives in a healthy and right direction. He reorientates our loves, our affections, our desires. He reorientates our thinking, our minds, and he brings us closer to himself. And he is the place. He, he, our relationship with our Father through the Son, by the Spirit, he 
is where peace and hope and joy and life are found only in relationship with him. Only. Maybe God is doing this through you now. Folks, don't lose hope. Don't think that God doesn't love you or care. That's what the Israelites were doing right here. And we see the end from the beginning here, don't we? Because we see what happens. Don't lose hope. The opposite is true. Watch and wait for what God is doing. But second of all, we see God's protection from our biggest threats. You see, folks, our biggest enemy, which we don't realize all the time, we think it's so many other things that are just transient and temporary. Our biggest enemy that we can't defeat are sin, death, and the devil. But Jesus Christ came and he dealt with all three. He stepped into the wilderness of human existence. He lived perfectly. Unlike Israel, unlike us, perfect obedience in every way. No complaining at all. And he allowed himself, truly God, truly man, to be taken and on a wooden cross, the epitome of human suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself, took the punishment upon himself for it. The waters of judgment, of God's judgment, fell upon him in our place. The Father did not hold back that water. It was poured fully upon him, exhausted upon him, and he died. He went through death. He was submerged, and he rose again three days later. Declared in victory over sin, death, and the devil. Gone. Defeated. And Jesus, as you read the Gospels, we read the Transfiguration account, he describes his own death as an exodus. So trusting in him, trusting in Jesus, those waters of judgments are held back. We pass through. We are protected. We pass through death to life. So we have no reason to fear. God protects you. God is with you. Our biggest enemies, folks, have been defeated. Second of all, we see God's presence. Israel experienced God's presence every step of the journey in the wilderness. God never left them alone. He didn't. He was in front of them. He was guiding them. He was leading them. He was behind them. He was on the side of them. And the Lord Jesus Christ ascended when he rose up to be with his father. He sent the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And when God the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, how was it experienced? It's a flame of fire on each one of them. It's a famous story. It's a flame of fire. Can you see what, what is happening here? This is a hyperlink. This is a, a touch point back. This is a look what I'm doing. I'm with you. This fiery cloud is back. God's presence with his people. God in us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. And how is the Holy Spirit described as a helper, as a guide? The Holy Spirit is God who leads us into truth. He shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings conviction. He leads us to repentance and faith. He shows us the glorious nature of who God is. He illuminates for us. We are God's people. We are a people of life. We're to live as God's people. See, what does the world see? Think of that fiery cloud. The world is where Egypt was. They see darkness. Either through this pandemic or this threat that we're all working through with nuclear war that we've all felt over the past few weeks. And people respond as a people without hope. Respond as a people with no hope. Despair, anxiety, and no purpose. But folks, we are a contrast to this. We are a people of light, a people of life, a people of promise, a people of hope, both past, present, and future. 
So how do we live as a people of hope, a people of light in this dark world? 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has given us not a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do you see that? That is just a wonderful verse. If I was going to get a tattoo, a, a tattoo on my eyelids, that's what I think I would get. Something that I could just look at all the time. I need this verse. The start of every day and through the day. I'm not sure if you can tattoo your eyelids because if you close them, you wouldn't see it anyway, would you? It'd be foolish. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Well, can I just say this? In fact, can I, this is a big challenge for me. I think it's something that we need to hear. Maybe the biggest impact for us as God's people right now is to be a people not of anxiety, to be a people not of fear, to be a people not of isolation who detach from God's community at a whim, to be a people not of purposelessness, to be a people who don't just protect their own, but maybe the biggest impact in God's call upon our lives and us as a church, Cornerstone Church Liverpool, at this moment, at this point in time, is to be bold and fearless because God is with us. Maybe that's our call, folks. Maybe our call is because we have the Holy Spirit within us. Not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That we are to step forward in love, living self-controlled lives as people living for God. A people of light stepping forward into the darkness. Thirdly, we see God's power. That phrase, fear not, stand firm, watch, and be still. That's been ringing around my head this morning. It really has. In Jesus Christ, God has worked salvation for his people. In Jesus Christ, he has destroyed his enemies. God doesn't wait and didn't wait for us to trust him to do this because that would never happen without his help. He does it. We see it and we acknowledge it and trust him. Jesus Christ, what did he say on the cross? It is finished. So in all things salvation, we look to him. We need to look to him. And I keep doing that, don't I? Sorry if that's distracting. And we are to stand firm. And we are to be still, especially in difficult times. Folks, ironically, standing firm and being still is not easy for a Christian to do. It's not. Let's call it what it is. It's something that we need to learn through a lot of discipline, to stand firm and be still. Spurgeon is a, a, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher a hundred or so years ago, and he said this. Standing firm in this way he's talking about takes years of teaching and learning to stand still in this way. Quick marching is easy for God's warriors, but to stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. Maybe God in this season, he's calling you to fear not. He's calling you to stand firm. He's calling you to watch, and he's calling you to be still looking and reflecting on what he has already done for you in Jesus Christ, hearing his promises. Life might be difficult for you right now. You might be walking through suffering and pain this very moment, this very morning, wondering why God, why now? What's happening? And folks, all of us, we will see the reality of the brokenness of the world. We're seeing it now, all of us, we are. Folks, you may have health problems, you may have job insecurity. You may have relational difficulty. You may have financial difficulty. You may have emotional difficulty or even mental difficulty. But there is great blessing in knowing and being with God. The Bible tells us that every heavenly blessing is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible tells us that there's a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to write all of these things. We will all see him. That is going to be an awesome, awesome sight that we won't even be able to stand before. And those who don't know him, that is going to be a day, folks, of fear and trembling. For those of us who do, we're going to be with him. We're going to be like him. All pain, all brokenness, all suffering, all reasons to fear will be gone forever. So let's turn to look to Jesus in whom we receive God's protection, God's presence, and God's power. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have done in and through him. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that comforts us, who helps us, who leads us. Thank you that you're with us now. Help us to believe that, Father. Help us to believe that you are here right now. Help us to believe that you help us. Help us to believe that you fight for us. Help us to believe that you have done everything that needed to be done to make us right before you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe that, Father. Help us to walk in newness of life. Help us to walk in boldness. Help us to walk in confidence. Help us to walk in fearlessness. Help us when it is needed, Father, to, to stand still and to watch and to see you, to be silent before you and see you work. Give us a trust that is beyond anything that we have experienced before in you and your character. Father, help us to see the peace and the blessing and the life and the hope that is ours, that is ours by your spirit that lives within us through your son. In your name, amen. The second we're going to take communion, the bread and the wine is going to go around. For a tangible reminder of God's protection tangible reminder of God's presence and a tangible reminder of God's power folks can I just ask if you are not a believer here this morning that you would let this pass the Bible says this is for, for those who believe please come and speak to us in the end we'd love to pray with you we'd love to tell you more about Jesus and as believers as this goes around folks let's, let's take this I was listening to someone this morning it was a song and the verse in the middle said this we fight on our knees that really struck me we fight on our knees. That's how we fight. We fight on our knees. So let's, as God's people, get on our knees before our holy, gracious Father, thanking Him, being grateful for what He has done, and receiving what He has done, and asking for His help, asking for His help to receive all those benefits of what He has done. He knows the pain you carry. He knows the difficulty that you are walking through. He knows. He cares. As you take this, be reminded of that care and ask. Folks, as we look around, God's people walk through this together. Let's be aware of each other. We are a people God has called us to. Let's pray for each other as we take this bread and this wine. Let's pray for one another as we take it too. Some of you will know the situations and circumstances of the lives of the people around you. Pray that they would experience this. Get on our knees and fight on our knees for the people that we love around us, for the family that God has put us amongst on behalf of one another. God is so gracious. So take this bread, take this wine. After a while, the guys will lead us in responding in song too.